Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello, and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. In 1910, a 16-year-old New Zealander named Lydia Harvey boarded a steamship bound for Buenos Aires in the company of a husband and wife who promised her a life of glamour and ease. What resulted was a journey into the world of commercial sex that took her from South America to London, where she turned the tables on her traffickers and became a star witness in their criminal trial. Up until now, that witness testimony constituted Lydia Harvey's lone moment in the historical spotlight. In the sweeping historical dramas of migration, crime, and sexual commerce, she was, at most, a bit player. One who steps fleetingly out of the shadows, speaks her two or three lines, and disappears. In her new book, The Disappearance of Lydia Harvey, the historian Julia Late places Harvey's story center stage. The book that results is a riveting narrative history that puts complex human faces on stories too often told through stock characters, histories of prostitution, of policing, of criminal justice, of moral panics. It's also a meditation on the politics of storytelling and the ethics of historical rescue, historians' efforts to give voice to the voiceless and to spotlight the lives of the neglected and obscure. I spoke to Julia Late over Zoom from her home in Cambridge. So I thought that maybe we could start sort of for the uninitiated reader, just on the most basic level, who was Lydia Harvey? And how did you first encounter her story? Sure. Thanks for having me, Mary Beth. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So Lydia Harvey has been with me for about a decade now, because I first encountered her in one of the hundreds and hundreds of police and home office files that I consulted for my first book, which which came out a very long time ago now. And in that book, she was just one of, you know, hundreds of examples that I gave to to illustrate my arguments about um, the effects of criminalization on women who sold sex and looking at the way that trafficking was constructed as a concept and and how trafficking victims were conceived. And she was, you know, one of one of the many young women who walked briefly across the stage of that narrative. And I just could not get her out of my head. For years and years, I kept thinking about her. She had been trafficked from New Zealand, from Wellington, New Zealand, where she worked as a domestic servant to Buenos Aires and then on to London. And that's all I knew. I didn't know where she was born or who she was. And I didn't know what happened afterwards. As I started getting really interested in family history, I I started digging around and trying to find uh, out some of the answers to those questions that I had about this young victim of trafficking from 1910. And to my great surprise, as I began to dig, I started to find more details about her life. And that's where the idea for the book was born really, this this idea of what if I radically recontextualized Lydia Harvey and and told her story from her own point of view, gave her a beginning and gave her an end rather than just used her as an example. Um, And so, yeah, that's that's who Lydia Harvey was. And I I found out more and more as time went by, but that's where I first encountered her was just in one of of hundreds of archive files. So 
I mean, the title of the book, it was occurring to me, The Disappearance of Lydia Harvey, that clearly you intended that on multiple registers. There's her literal disappearance from her home in New Zealand. There's her disappearance from the historical record after her kind of brief moment on this you know, relatively small spotlight. Um, and then, as you put it in the book, there's her disappearance inside the stories that other people told about her. And I guess I have so many questions about that. And, but the first one, I suppose, is just in terms of context. I wonder if you could sort of set the stage for the, the particular moment in which she did walk across the, the historical stage and the, the stories that were being told about her and where those stories were kind of most um, resonant at the time. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. That's that's you've nailed the title perfectly um, <laughs> and the three levels on which it works. But I actually think the most important one is the one you're asking about her her disappearance inside the stories that other people told about her, because the year that Lydia Harvey was trafficked from Wellington to Buenos Aires was also arguably the apex of what was called the white slavery panic. And it was, it, it had started a couple, a few decades earlier, but it had kind of been, been growing in urgency. And it was in many ways a moral panic constructed around the idea of the feminization of migration and the feminization of labor. So, so many women um, in unprecedented numbers were, were leaving their homes, leaving their towns, often rural towns or provincial towns and going to bigger cities looking for work more and more women were working away from home and more and more young women were aspirational, dreaming of social mobility, of romance, of living in big cities. And this caused this immense panic about girls who disappeared. And so newspapers just started filling with stories of young women, just like Lydia Harvey, who left their respectable posts in domestic service and uh, dreamed of a life on the stage or dreamed of, of more money and better clothes and travel. And then were, were duped by dastardly foreign traffickers into selling sex, often in these stories, imprisoned within brothels, not allowed to leave. And often within these stories, really quite forcibly kidnapped. So drugged or stuck with hypodermic needles, kidnapped by procuresses dressed as nuns and bundled into taxis and taken away never to be seen again. And so these tropes were so highly symbolic. I mean, they, they were underlying them were very real experiences of exploitation within the sex industry, but these stories weren't so much interested in, in that they were, they were about this innocent white young women uh, who, who would be, kidnapped and taken away. And um, the, the symbolism was this inherent danger of young women leaving home. And so women like Lydia Harvey were idealized as victims. And this idealization meant that there was very little attention paid to who they actually were. And that that's kind of my point about these young women disappearing inside the stories that other people told about them. So you have this sense that you can actually invert the kind of you know foreground background relation that the the context the sweeping stories can go into the background she can move into the foreground and and in the end she moves into the foreground along with five other people so maybe you could talk us through your your cast of characters and how you lit upon them sure thing i love the way you just put that by the way <laughs> the way that that the the the, the foreground and background 
change because that's exactly how I imagined it when I was writing. So I I started out hunting for Lydia Harvey and, and I found more than I could have ever dreamed I would find about her. But I, I knew pretty much from the get-go that it would never be enough to build an entire book just around her. Um, I would never be able to know enough or, you know, find enough material about her. That's where the idea of first kind of thinking, okay, well, I'm doing, I'm giving Lydia Harvey this treatment, this kind of deeply contextualized biographical treatment. Why don't I turn that same lens on the other people in this story whose lives briefly entangled with hers? And the next person I started digging uh, for was was the trafficker himself. But then I thought, why, why don't I do it to everyone, including the state authorities that she encountered and the rescue workers? And so that's that's where the idea of the, the book really started to develop and the structure of the book. And then once I started doing that, I realized the value of that polyvocality in terms of seeing Lydia Harvey through other people's eyes and seeing different aspects of this same story, enabling me to really challenge challenge stereotypes about what trafficking looked like. And so the cast of characters begins with Lydia Harvey and and the first part of her story uh, where she was born and grew up and then eventually leading to when she was trafficked. And it that that chapter kind of ends at the moment she encounters the policeman, the first policeman who who uh, approaches her and identifies her. And then it switches to the police's perspective. So Ernest Anderson is the detective inspector who is in charge of investigating her case. And the next chapter is told from his point of view, in which I try to illuminate the police's quite complex attitudes towards trafficking, as well as their both um, admirable and less admirable methods of policing it. From there, I move on to uh, a person I call the newsman, Guy Scholafield, who actually ends up going on to become a, 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 you know, one of the most important figures in New Zealand history, uh, historiography, I should say, as in he's sort of considered uh, one of the premier early New Zealand historians. But at the time, he was the New Zealand Press Association's correspondent in London. And through his, his eyes, we see the police court trial unfold and we discover, you know, what, what, what happened in that trial. But we also learn about those stories I was referring to earlier. So how the narrative of white slavery is used by the press, deployed by the growing tabloid newspapers, as well as the more respectable ones, told and retold and recycled and used to, to mean all kinds of things. The, the next chapter is about Eileen McDougall, who's a social worker or a rescue worker, and she's the one who runs the safe house to which Lydia Harvey is sent. And through her, through her eyes, we see the Central Criminal Court trial unfold, and we learn a lot about the law and how it's applied in terms of sexual offenses. And I, her chapter for me is, is in some ways the most powerful one, because it really demonstrates how many young women were failed by these conceptions of, of trafficking as something that happens outside the neighborhood, outside the home, and, and those sorts of things. Um, she, yeah, she's an incredible woman. I switch then to the trafficker himself, uh, Antonio Carvelli, who is a really quite picaresque man, opera singer, a ne'er-do-well, a thief, a con man, who ends up leaving Italy and building this new life for himself in Australia and New Zealand. And yeah, so, and then the next chapter is about his wife and accomplice. And then finally I return to Lydia Harvey herself. 
So that's that's my cast of characters. I kind of skipped over the wife and accomplice, didn't I? Um, <laughs> her name is, is Veronique Carvelli. In her chapter, she's known as the woman unknown. And in through through her story, I really play with the idea of the, the kind of globalization of sex work and her own role, both as a kind of actualized sex worker who clearly is making good in this market, but also her role as as a trafficker. And it was a really hard chapter to write, actually. What, why? What was hard about it? I, it was just really hard because I didn't know that, you know, as, as you can tell from the whole book, I, there's, I don't I don't know about these these characters internal worlds. They very frustratingly are not the sort of folks who kept ego documents or if if they did, the, they never ended up in an archive. And and so it, it, her absence was the most palpable because I could sense what a complex role she played in, in the story and, and what a, a complex life she had. And I was very keen to make it clear that there were women in the early 20th century who were engaging in sex work as a choice willingly and who were even making huge amounts of money from it, more money than they could make any in any other industry. And so I really wanted to highlight that for Veronique but I was also deeply aware of her own role potentially as having been exploited by her husband, but also her role as an exploiter. And I think it's these sorts of figures, both in the past and in the present, that most trouble our tidy dichotomies between victim and perpetrator, uh, upon which so many of the stories we tell about crime and exploitation rest but which often break down when we start looking at real human beings. And so I think that was what Veronique really symbolized for me. And it was very difficult to, to write her. And in, in terms of what you found, were there surprises along the way, things that you found that you hadn't anticipated? Yeah, definitely. Um, the, the, the first one was just the way that how mobile these kind of working and lower middle class people were. And this is, you know, this is something that's in the historiography a, a little bit, but I don't think in general, we, we appreciate just how mobile the, the early 20th century world was. And I would just always be so surprised at how much people were moving around and, and really making use of what had become fairly affordable transoceanic travel. Um, and so that was one surprise, just like, uh, now he's in Hawaii, now they're in Vancouver, uh, to the point where I actually couldn't even fit all of the travels of, of these folks into the story, because it would just end up being kind of a catalog of their of their adventures around the world. So that's one thing that I, I did, even if I did know, you know, theoretically, this was, this is a hallmark of the early 20th century seeing it play out in individual lives and just how much they moved around was really surprising. Uh, another big surprise was discovering, because for, for a, a long time, a couple of years, I just knew the newspaper reporter as, the, as our correspondent in London, because of course, journalists didn't have bylines in the early 20th century. But then when I discovered that the, the correspondent, uh, the, the press correspondent for New Zealand, who was writing up the story of Lydia Harvey and then syndicating it all around New Zealand, when I discovered that it was it was Guy Scholefield, who is, is very, very well known in, in New Zealand and kind of helped shape its early history, I was really, I was really surprised thinking about his role in the story. And finally, I the, the biggest, I think the biggest surprise of all was in uncovering the kind of truth about Lydia Harvey's family. 
because yeah, extraordinary her, extraordinary. her mother <laughs> really extraordinary and and you know because we tend to as historians when we're not deeply contextualizing people and 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 you know not you you can't always apply this methodology because it is incredibly time consuming for no if for no other reason than that but we tend to make assumptions about people's backgrounds based on that kind of stock historical characters and so i was just perpetually surprised as I, I discovered more and more about Lydia Harvey's mother, the fact that she had eight children with no husband. And then with the help of some amazing PhD work from historians in New Zealand, I was able to contextualize that. And, you know, it really was not typical for single women to have eight children from at least four different fathers at this time um, at all she would have been considered very extraordinary in that regard. And then when I was uncovering who Lydia Harvey's father was and discovered that he had such a prominent position, um, social position, and he was so wealthy, all of these things were just so unexpected, almost like a, a dramatic novel more than history. And just watching my, uh, my sort of image of the stock character and her stock family just sort of collapse into, into, into a kind of thing that you just couldn't make up. Um, was really quite surprising. It was it was so fascinating, but also really surprising. Well, I think one of the wonderful things about the book that I really appreciated were these these details that were that clearly came out of your research that are kind of in some ways incidental to the story, but just you know create such reverberations. Like Lydia Harvey is runner up in that beauty contest at the beginning of the story, and that the winner was someone who had. Uh, uh, an assault that went to court that was then it, it, that Lydia Harvey's father was involved in. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's just incredible. And that's it. I think that's the other thing. The other point to make is it was just the sort of interconnectivities of stories that just really did feel like absolutely incredible and, and really surprising how connected these, these people ended up being. And yeah, Lydia Harvey winning, um, winning the second uh, second place in the beauty contest in 1909 was actually the very first moment that I discovered her beyond the archive file that I initially had. So that was, I was searching and searching and searching and I couldn't, I couldn't find any information about her because as I say in the book, her birth certificate, um, it doesn't exist. Her birth wasn't registered for reasons mostly to do it, I suspect, with the fact that her father was an asshole. But she, she wins this silver purse and I, it's just the smallest amount of detail. And I thought, okay, it's a beginning. It's somewhere to start. And so I worked with that really short report so much. I, I figured out what films were on tour in New Zealand at the time and like what she was likely going to be watching in with the Pathé Brother, Brothers films. And then I didn't really think about Nellie Mathy, the first place winner until I thought, you know, I, I got to a bit where I wanted to describe it. And I thought, I'm going to look up Nellie Mathy and see, you know, if I can find information about her. And that's when I discovered that she too had been a victim of sexual violence. And in a like crazy twist of irony, her, the perpetrator, the, um, the, the rapist was, was defended by Lydia Harvey's father. Um, and it's just these little details, again, like you, you, you can't make it up. I would never have thought to make those connections if I had been writing a novel. Um, and and yet in real life, they're there. It's really yeah. remarkable. Yeah, yeah. I also, I mean, you, you say this along the way at a couple of points, but it, it strikes me that's just how much that 
sense of connectedness and those facts of connectedness are more accessible to you as a historian now because of the digitization of genealogical and newspaper records that, um, I mean, I wonder if writing, if this kind of a book would have been possible to write with the level of detail that you've accessed without that, yeah, or without definitely. devoting an entire life to it. Yeah, it definitely wouldn't have been. The only way this book was possible was because of this mass digitization, uh, mostly of information designed for the family history industry. So that obviously includes the genealogical records, which have been digitized and centralized by place, by people like um, Ancestry, Find My Past, and Family Search. And so there was that, but also the newspapers because these mass digitization of newspapers, particularly in New Zealand and Australia, are also part, like, partly driven or driven to a fairly large extent, not by providing them for academic historical research, but providing them as a resource for family historians. And so without these resources created for family history um, digitally, there's just no way, like I just could not have, have written the book because it would have required, as you say, a lifetime but possibly even more because the, you know, the, the really good example is finding Antonio Carvelli through the newspapers. So this guy, you know, he had about 14, 15 pseudonyms, about five that he, he used relatively regularly. And just searching for each of those pseudonyms in newspapers where they never would have been indexed. I mean, that's just, it's actually physically impossible, no matter how many lifetimes I would have lived, I still wouldn't have been able to find these names hidden in little reports on local sporting events and um, things like that. So it's just, it's, it's not just an accelerated way of doing historical research, it's a whole new methodology. So you've, you've got this, all these fragments of information, you have a sense of how you want to invert the models and tell the story. At what point did your sense of this, what you've called the, the polyphonic history, polyvocal history or historical collage, did you have any models for that, either literary or historical that you were drawing upon? That's a really good question. Um, I, I did a lot of reading of, of um, kind of Rashomon effect novel. So I, I went, I went right back to In the Glade, that, that sort of original modern short story that's, that became the film Rashomon, which really played with this idea of the story told through different perspectives and each perspective kind of adds a different element or reveals a different part of the plot. Or in the case of um, In the Glade slash Rashomon, each narrator is highly unreliable. So each one has a different version of the same story. And I read quite deeply, um, into other, other other ways that novelists have used this. So Ian pairs the instance of the finger post, which is not the same time, not the same kind of characters, not really the same story at all, but it has that polyvocality, that kind of unreliable narrator. So those things, I also started taking, and this is, this is slightly joking, but the more I think of it, the more I think it's really accurate. I started um, saying to people that I was writing a, a book that was a little bit like The Wire, but for history. And I actually do think, in all seriousness, that The Wire was probably the most powerful model of narration for me, because it really played with this idea of how social issues look very different, depending on which perspective they're narrated from. And the way that The Wire worked through that season after season 
which was both really insightful, hard hitting, but also very humane in terms of the way that it presented both, say, the drug dealers, the drug users and the cops. And I just thought it was the most uh, really, really powerfully done. And conversely, I also was so disappointed with the way The Wire treated their sex trafficking plot line. So there is a sex trafficking plot line in one of the seasons of The Wire, and they do such a wonderful job of, of other social issues, and they do such a crap job of depicting trafficking. And so I, I just thought, this, this really fits. I'll, I'll, I'll think through the way that The Wire presents these different issues. You know, here's the perspective from the media. Here's the perspective from the cops. Here's the perspective from the schools. But I'll do a better job of trafficking. So, yeah, I actually think I think I think it was that more than anything else that helped me think about how to build this polyvocal history. So you've been your book's been praised as a kind of exemplary example of what sometimes and, and I think kind of problematically called creative history. And I wanted to invite you to, to just reflect on on that kind of categorization and and maybe on the role of imagination for you in telling this, in imagining this story and telling this story? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And one I think a lot about, I mean, it's obviously cre- creative history in that it's, it is narrative nonfiction. It, is, it tells a story, it has a plot. So I think that's one place where it really pushes at the boundaries of, of academic history in that I obviously didn't invent the plot but I made decisions about the order in which I would reveal information, which is implotment. I think all historians do that to a certain extent, but in this case, it was I was thinking about it much more than I would have been, say, in my, in my first book, where I didn't even use the word plot in my head. But I think all history is creative at the end of the day. I mean, uh, there's so many examples stretching back through decades of, of creative ways of telling history. And So I wouldn't want to sort of say that this is something brand new, but it's definitely creative history. And it definitely, probably, definitely, probably, it it probably involves a little bit more imagination than an average, average history book. And uh, obviously I turned to Natalie Zeman Tafis for, for the inspiration in that regard, that, that famous line, what I offer you here is in part my invention held tightly in check by the voices of the past. And I, I value that intervention of hers, not not just because it's just a beautiful way to, to put these kinds of creative histories or to describe these kinds of creative histories, but also because I think all historians do that. And she was just being explicit about it. And I think, you know, there's a reason why everyone thinks so highly of her work because she was really trailblazing in terms of, you know, sort of saying this is part of history. And so when I started imagining this book, I I had to, I actually experimented with different forms of imagining. Uh, There was a a part of the writing process where I thought, you know, should I imagine their interior worlds? So I don't have any information about what they were thinking or feeling. What are my own rules going to be for how much I, I guess at that? And in the end, I decided very little. I would, I would, be very, very cautious when imagining what their interior worlds would be. And that's where I deploy those um, historians tools of perhaps and maybe and must have. Um, That's where those really came into effect. So, you know, Lydia Harvey arriving in Buenos Aires, she must have felt this way and that way. You know, did she feel this? Did she feel that? So, you know, rhetorically, that's how I got around that. I also thought, you know, how much imagining am I going to do with questions of affect and description? So 
when you know usually when you're writing novelistically you imagine your 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 characters embodied in in time and space and and you imagine them doing things like tucking hair behind ears and i realized i can't narrate like that because that just i've i've set this rule for myself and so i can't narrate affect in the same way and it was actually really difficult to write some of these scenes without describing you know how people were moving and what they were doing because i couldn't know that but in terms of describing the wider scenes, that's where the imagination, I could really, I could really play with it because I had so much contextual information. I could, I could know what the weather was like that day. I could physically go to the site where the scene was happening, which I did as much as I possibly could. Or I could use the, the wonderful blessings of Google Earth to drop myself on streets and walk up and down them. Local history societies provided huge amounts of photographs from the time so I could see what those neighborhoods looked like at the time. There was even one case where um, some people saw me taking a picture of a house in, in Melbourne and invited me inside for tea. So I was actually able to go into the interior of the home and, and, and make notes in terms of describing the scenes. So that was so fun. That was one of my favorite parts of, of the whole thing. And also using novels and short stories that were written and set in the same places. To, to help inflect the, the, because of course, novelists and short story writers are really great at describing things. So yeah, I, that was really fun, but there were, there were rules and not being able to talk about affect or interior, interior thoughts was a real challenge. There's a really lovely moment. I think it's in the, in the chapter on uh, Veronique, the accomplice, the woman unknown, where you say that she ultimately resists your attempts to rescue her from the condescension of posterity. And so, you know, you're referencing E.P. Thompson and, and the, the effort of the historian to, to reclaim voices. And there's so much, there's so many tropes around this, around giving the past a voice, particularly in the writing of radical history, around the writing and imagining of radical history as an act of rescue. And it seemed to me as I thought about this, there's clearly, you're aware of attention there between the fact that you're writing about a history of attempts to rescue, quote, fallen women, and you're embarking on your own attempt at rescue or reclaiming or rehabilitating or uh, resuscitating, whatever metaphor you want to talk about of kind of bringing back to life and giving their own agency. And I wondered if, you know, how that awareness or that tension shaped ultimately your sense of your own, your own voice in this story? Yeah, that's, that's such a good question. And one that I've probably pondered more than any other, because I always sensed a tension with, the, with this concept of rescue and rescuing people from the condescension of posterity, because I'd spent so many years writing about rescue workers and the parallels are really obvious in that, and I think I sort of, I say this somewhere, possibly in the book, <laughs> where I'm, I'm marching in, into the past and, and rescuing people without asking whether or not they wanted to be saved. And I think that historians make a lot of assumptions about, we value history, we value being remembered. And so we kind of extrapolate that out to everybody else and assume that the, the sort of act of remembering somebody or rescuing them from the sort of invisibility in the past is inherently uh, unproblematically good and what people want. 
And of course, the second you really start thinking about that, you realize that can't possibly be true. There's lots of reasons why people won't want, wouldn't want to be rescued from the condescension of posterity. And so I did, I guess I, I almost agonized over this for a, a little while. And, you know, I thought about anonymization, but ultimately Lydia Harvey is very long dead and her the record of her experience is freely accessible in the archives and she's named in the archives and she's, she's named in other places. And so I thought, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to anonymize, but it did finally, I kind of got over some of those questions and it finally led me to realize that one of the things historians probably need to think more carefully about is the, is the way that we deploy people as examples. So that's, I think, you know, we often say we're rescuing people from the condescension of posterity, but really we're, we're not we're not fully contextualizing them. We're not radically recontextualizing them in their lives. We're using a, a snippet of their life that's a convenient example for for us to, to deploy in service of a historical argument. And I don't I really don't think there's anything wrong with that either. But I think it's important to be aware of of that and to not just sort of couch it in these quite um kind of comforting, cozy ideas of nobling, rescuing people from the past um, that often get deployed, as you say, there's there's almost a trope at this point. And so I think it's important to think about, you know, how does the image of this person, the person who I'm rescuing change when I radically recontextualize them? And like I said, you can't possibly do that for every historical actor that you're using. And it's, it's not appropriate for a lot of different kinds of history. But I think it's still important to think about what it means to tell a story, uh, someone's story from in service of your argument and what it means to tell a story trying to reconstruct how they may have told it themselves. But that's the other reason why I decided that there could be no internal narration because that was only ever going to be my voice. I'd done a lot of imagining uh, about who Lydia Harvey was and um, and therefore I could have a sense of how she thought and felt, but th- that would always always have been what I thought she thought and felt, what I wanted her to think and feel. And so, yeah, I, I, that's, that, was, that was what led me to say, I'm, I'm not going to attempt to think about, to talk about how she felt. Yeah, I, I mean, as you speak, I was just remembering how early in the book, there's a picture of her but we don't know which one she is in the in the crowd and in a way I mean you say it's it's poetic and and you're exactly right in in a way it's exactly the sort of visual referent for what you're talking about here you can get close to her but you can't actually know her we can get close to her face but we can't know which one she is exactly and in that picture that so it's a it's a school picture and i know she's in the picture because she's in that class and she's listed as part of the, that class and in that image but which the the wonderful archivist at Waikiki uh, District Archives in Omaru found for me. But only 50% of the girls are named. And so I also know that she had brown hair, so I can eliminate a couple other potential people, but it, it kind of boils down to about, she's one of six girls in this picture. And I could feel my desire to rescue her for my own sake coming through every time I looked at that picture because I kept thinking, oh, it's her. I just know it's her about one particular young woman in, 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 the, in the picture. And I really have no evidence other than, oh, she looks a little bit like her cousin who I did know was in there. I have no evidence to be confident but I wanted so desperately to be confident and I could just feel those two currents pulling at me all the time, which 
kind of really encapsulates that struggle that you you want to recognize people, you want to name them, you want to see them, you want to feel that connection to them in the past. But all of that is coming from the historian, not from not from the person in the past. It's not a reciprocal relationship. And yeah, so I just, there's nothing more than that picture that really exemplified that tension for me. And so, yeah, I'll always stare at that picture and wonder, but there's something very poetic about knowing I never will know. So what, what are you working on now? So I, I, as anybody who's kind of dipped into family history probably knows, it's incredibly addictive um, once you, once you start. And in fact, I have had to stop myself from continuing to do Lydia Harvey at Al's family histories. Um, I have had to cut myself off because I know there has to be more stuff I could potentially find if I just kept searching for another decade. Um, so I, I, I have to tell myself, stop. So instead, I, I've decided to, 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 to think about family history in terms of my own family history. Um, so after having done the family histories of six people, I don't know, I, I've decided to, to use this method, methodology for my own family history. Because I think that, and I, and I think this is true of the disappearance of Lydia Harvey as well, family history and the kind of intimate details it brings those connections we were talking about earlier, the kind of collapse of stock characters, the second you start looking at family stories and individual stories, all of that, I think, provides a really powerful way to tell difficult histories because it emphasizes connection. It emphasizes the way in which people don't necessarily occupy tidy categories of victim or perpetrator or, or what have you. So the idea going forward is that I'm going to use that family history to talk about settler colonialism in the context of Newfoundland history. So my family settled in Newfoundland in the 18th century. I'm starting to find out. I don't know many other details. And I want to use that family history moving forward through time to think about what settler colonialism means in the context of Newfoundland history, what Newfoundland means in the context of wider imperial history. And yeah, so that's that's the next project. Uh, quite a departure from writing about commercial sex and trafficking, but very much connected to questions of migration, family history, and telling difficult stories. Writing The Disappearance of Lydia Harvey, for the first time, I've really felt like a writer. And like all, all historians obviously are writers. History is many things and a literature is one of them. But there was just something so freeing about writing in this form, about being imaginative, about thinking about plot, about thinking about narration, that really made me hungry to write in different ways and to break out of some of the tropes and forms that are so typical of history writing and just to think really unconventionally about how I could use my own training as a historian to, to write very in very different ways in different genres uh, because, because I just really, really love it. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. It's been just such a pleasure to talk about this and, uh, and congratulations on the book. It's absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. I've really had a lovely time chatting with you, Mary Beth. Many thanks to Julia Late for taking part in this podcast. Her book, The Disappearance of Lydia Harvey, A True Story of Sex, Crime, and the Meaning of Justice, is published by Profile Books. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. 
This is the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.